there's this interesting emergence too as people move away. I think the relationship between Stoicism and religion is very interesting. But I've always kind of suspected as people have moved away from having religion serve that function, there's become more space for philosophies as ways of life or more need for um, overarching value structures to adopt. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode, Michael and I talk about the range of different Stoicisms in the world. Our main focus is to strike the right balance between Stoic theory and practice and ensure that the theory is correct and the practice is useful. Once again, this is a new podcast, whether it's rating or subscribing in your favorite podcast player or reaching out with any feedback, comments, we greatly appreciate it. And here is our conversation. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. I'm one of the founders of Stoa. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Michael, one of the founders of Stoa as well. And today we're going to be talking about different kinds of Stoicism, the plethora of varieties one has with this philosophy. Yeah, great. Um, maybe I'll just jump right into it because I made a list here. I thought this was an interesting idea for an episode because there's lots of ways you can approach stoicism, lots of different ways to think about it. Um, so I've written down them and my plan was to kind of go through them one by one and then, you know, we'll talk about them um, to both to explain for those that aren't familiar, but then also kind of flesh out criticisms or our opinion about about these certain approaches. Um so right off the top, the ones that I have down, and then we'll go in, are broicism, that's one, dollar sign stoicism, so where the S is, is written with the S as a dollar sign, um, small s stoic, traditional stoicism, modern stoicism, and academic stoicism. Those are kind of six categories um, that I wanted to talk about. And starting with the first three, broicism, dollar sign stoicism, and small s stoic, I think these are misinterpretations of stoicism or ways that stoicism gets taken in the wrong direction. And I think the later three, um, traditional stoicism, modern stoicism, and academic stoicism are not misinterpretations, but they're different ways of kind of approaching or embodying the, the core essence of, of stoic philosophy. So starting with that, I wanted to start off with um, dollar sign stoicism. So I call it dollar sign stoicism, but this is the one when it's written, the S has a dollar, uh, as a dollar symbol instead of an S. Um, and what this is, is this is to use Stoicism um, only as a set of kind of life hacks or a set of tools to achieve an ends that is not a Stoic ends, to achieve an ends that is something other than virtue, I would say. So the, 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 um, the kind of paradigm of this or the stereotype of this is an entrepreneur or maybe somebody, you know, in the uh, kind of pejorative representation of somebody in the tech space who is incorporating um, the dichotomy of control to increase their productivity or to increase their capacity to excel at work. Um, but then, you know, just using these stoic tools um, to become more productive in kind of their professional pursuits 
in their monetary pursuit specifically. That's why it's dollar sign stoicism. Um, but, but achieving, so they're still attached to these external goods. They're still attached to something that's very non-stoic and that's their final goal, but they've incorporated um, these stoic strategies for handling stress, these stoic strategies for handling adversity um, and using, they're using those to kind of achieve uh, their monetary goals instead, their kind of professional goals or their goals in pursuit of external goods. So that's the first one. What do you think about that, Caleb? That's a good, a good, a good intro of uh, six different versions of Stoicism. I mean, it does seem like Broicism is clearly a, it's a misinterpretation of the philosophy. But one thing one could say in its, to some extent, a kind of defense of using Stoicism as a set of heuristics is, or a set of heuristics, tools, life hacks, if you will, is that it's the beginning of applying the philosophy. So certainly lots of people discover it through um, some technique and there's nothing wrong with finding the philosophy through a technique that you find useful. The criticism comes in if the technique is used for poor ends. Um, and that's something that's, that's central to Stoicism is that um, when in one's actions, one should be trying to be virtuous and there's nothing admirable or impressive about using techniques that take you the wrong direction, as it were. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's, um, I think that's the right way to think about it. There's nothing wrong with using heuristics or tools. And, and I often think that that kind of, that understanding of, of stoicism is very valuable. And I wouldn't want to criticize people that, that do it, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly still a, a, a misunderstanding. Um, or I guess, I guess when it becomes dangerous is, I guess there's no harm in saying, look, I'm not an Epicurean. I'm not an Aristotelian. Um, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, I'm not a Christian, but there's certain aspects of these worldviews that I'm going to adopt. I'm going to take on, and that's going to be helpful to me. I think where the dollar sign stoicism is more harmful is when people who have a, uh, who haven't really dug into stoicism think they're being stoics. They think, oh, okay, I'm now being a good stoic because I'm effectively moderating my stress as I, uh, pursue professional goals as I pursue the collection of money and prestige and things like this. Um, then there's a problem because, you know, it's not, you're not necessarily any more vicious than uh, anybody else. You're not any necessarily a worse person than other people who, who, who aren't stoic. And you know, I don't want to condemn people that have these professional goals, but when you've, now that you've misunderstood it, you kind of lose access, I think, to the better parts of it. The, 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 aspects uh, about the importance of virtue, the importance of character over external goods. You lose access to those because you think, well, I already get it. I already understand it. I just, it is just a set of tools. And um, now I'm making the most of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The idea of, or this idea is also related to criticisms one sometimes hears about selling anything related to Stoicism, which uh, you know the dollar sign in this version of Stoicism brings brings to mind. So there's always the question of: Is some work product distorted by incentives that are not directly related to the 
philosophy or the, the teaching, what have you. And this is not a unique problem. It's, of course, a problem that the, many of the Stoics themselves faced when the ancient Stoics faced when they took uh, money for running their schools or teaching particular students or serving as a, as a tutor. Um, but it's one one should always keep in mind. I think not as something that is a rule that means one should never take money for providing uh, philosophical services. That seems far too strict to me, but as a potentially um, distorting effect on either your work, you know, our, our work in particular, or whenever you are consuming other people's works, there's always these incentives that might get in the way of um, really just uh, expressing truth. Yeah, that was well put. New nuanced put um, because certainly, like you know, Marx, Aurelius, and Seneca in particular are very famous for being very wealthy, for not really, and 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 as they should be if you can balance the this preferred money as a preferred indifferent right as as they should be if they can if they can balance possessing wealth in a way that doesn't compromise their virtue and as aristotle talks about a lot of the time money is complementary to virtue right because the more money you have the the greater capacity you have to help other people um the greater capacity you have to make positive change and and uh positive influence on the world um but yeah, I think that's the part, I think that's the part, I think as you hit on this question of incentives, so this idea that, you know, is your goal virtue and helping others and money then becomes a means by which to do that or a byproduct of that, or is your goal the accumulation of money and you're now kind of presenting um, stoic ideas you're either using stoic tools or presenting stoic lessons as a means by which to do that there seems to be some sort of perversion going on um i know people that do this that you know post stoic quotes and um are looking at this as they're they're only taking on part of the picture and by only taking on part of the picture they're um misapplying or misunderstanding because they're attempting to combine the quote to, to their worldview which is often about the collection and the mastery of, of externals and accumulation of reputation and property and wealth and things like that. So the next one I wanted to talk about was broicism. So first one was stoicism with a dollar sign. Second one is broicism. And to me, broicism is the tendency to use stoicism to promote kind of a, a masculine ideal or to confuse and combine stoicism with a, a masculine idea that masculine idea to be numb non-feeling um tough strong it's to try to try to reduce stoicism to um not just masculine characteristics i would say but but perhaps like i would say misunderstood masculine characteristics that idealize being unfeeling um, being like a statue, things like this. Um, my main issue with broicism, it's the same kind of one with the dollar sign stoicism, is I think people can come to stoicism, men in particular, uh, that think, well, I'm having trouble with my emotions. I'm having trouble with my anger. I'm having trouble with my sadness. I want to figure out how to regulate these things, how to understand these things better. But because they're, they're, they're already taking their worldview and then and then they're interpreting what they learn from stoicism through that worldview they end up 
just taking these things as well. Okay, if I, like, let's take the dichotomy of control again. If I just detach myself from anything that's not up to me, I'll, I'll be numb and I won't feel anything. Or, um, you know, if, if I just don't care if I die or I don't care if the people around me die, it's, the, it, it, it's taking things, I think, sometimes too far. And I think sometimes misunderstanding the nuance of Stoicism's conception of preferred indifference or dispreferred indifference. And the, the, the people, they, 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 they don't want to, I think sometimes people don't want to, to hurt anymore or want to be like a certain kind of action hero or a certain kind of role model. And they take the quick path to that rather than the long path, which is the long path is, is, is an entirely changing of your worldview, a changing of your paradigm, a prioritization of, of virtue. And the short path is kind of a, a cutting off, a numbing, um, an acting like you've made more progress than you have and trying to jump to the end right away. Um, again, not, not harmful in terms of, I think it's good when people try to apply Stoicism and try to learn about it, but I still think it's, it's a misinterpretation of the, the, the teachings of Stoicism so it's, it provides less value than a proper understanding would. There's a related mistake that doesn't always happen this way, but can happen this way, where you find stoicism valuable as a tool of emotional management and then only find it valuable as a tool for emotional management. And I think that might cause one to overvalue uh, trying to feel particular ways instead of trying to have certain beliefs or make make good decisions. That would be the Stoic critique on that. Uh, none of the ancient philosophies or ancient philosophers were really solely focused on emotional management, but saw emotional management, perhaps with the exception of the Epicureans, as something that was really just an upshot from a more fundamental transformation as you were saying. Yeah, I feel like you keep putting it in, in, in much more articulate way than, than me, which is great. But that, that's exactly it, right? Is they say, look, I, I want to have this kind of emotional management. I want to be able to be cool and collected in tough situations. I want to be able to be that kind of rock or that pillar uh, for my family and this kind of like have this kind of emotional toughness. Um, but that's not the goal of stoicism. That's a that's an upside to being a courageous, wise, temperate, you know, uh, just person. And so, so when you achieve virtue or you develop your virtues, that emotional management is the, is the upside of that. But if you try to skip straight to the emotional management, you end up with, I often feel it's kind of pretending or a kind of you're numbing yourself or you're detaching yourself. You're, 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 you begin using tools of emotional management either incorrectly or in ways that are harmful. Yeah, I think, I think the way you were putting it w was dead on. Yeah, yeah. I th the other part of this critique is sort of that it's too bro-y would be the clunky way to put it, too uh, infiltrated by a dubious idea of masculinity when people promote this kind, these kinds of ideas around maybe suppressing emotion or... Uh, you know, um, maybe even just not expressing emotion. These ideas are expressed in opposition to a, another idea. You know, like expressing of all emotions is fine, or 
some mm. norm that at least people perceive that people say that you know men should express all their emotions or lack emotional control whatsoever and I think what stoicism does instead, or the way I think people should think about it, is sort of cutting through that debate or stepping back and thinking about, you know, what are these emotions? And of course, that's where we, we've talked about in earlier episodes about, uh, you know, thinking of emotion in terms of judgment. And then it's less of a question of just expressing every emotion or suppressing emotion and more about thinking about, uh, you know, how you react to the world and what your place is in it. Um, yeah, this question, if I'm understanding you correctly, this, this, it's not really about the degree to which you feel, or it is not about the degree to which you express these emotions. It's about which emotions you're expressing and why, and, um, what that tells you about, as we talked about in the Stoicism and Emotions episode, what that tells you about your character, what that tells you about what you value in the world, what that tells you about how you're relating to the world. And that's the relevant thing, which as you pointed out, is kind of a third thing. It's different from this view of, well, you shouldn't express emotions because you should be tough, you should be strong, and emotions are uh, weak or at least potentially weakening and distracting, or you know, everything you feel is appropriate, everything you feel is justified, these kind of two extremes. And it's not even really a Goldilocks um, solution. It's not a, it's not a middle ground. It's a, it's kind of a paradigm shift and a different way of approaching it. Yeah. So I think that's the thing that broicism can miss is it can get caught up in that incorrect dichotomy, as you pointed out. So this connects really well with a um, little less stoicism and a little less stoicism um, simply put, it's a, it's an adjective and it's a term that you apply to anyone that doesn't express emotion, that doesn't express extreme reactions. Uh, those that don't study Stoicism or those that aren't into Stoicism, you know, most people will know what the word Stoic means or know that it has a sense of people who aren't reactive. When I tell people I'm a Stoic or that I, you know, I'm involved in the Stoicism community, they'll always make a joke about, or I'll say I'm excited for something. And they'll be like, oh, that's funny. You're excited for something and you're a Stoic. Um, and these are people who are non- you know, they don't know anything about the philosophy, but they just know that I'm not supposed to be excited or I'm not supposed to be happy, or at least that's their sense of it. Um, and I think a little less stoicism is a bit different because broicism and, and dollar sign stoicism are, I think, ways that practitioners misunderstand stoicism. And I would say a little less stoicism is an incorrect view about people um, that people outside of the Stoicism community or people who don't study or practice Stoicism view Stoicism. And I think it's real harm is that it can stop people from getting into Stoicism or stop people from engaging in Stoicism because it's a, they, they view Stoicism. If they say, well, all Stoicism is, is it's a way to become a little less Stoic. It's a way to become numb. It's a way to become unfeeling. Um, and I don't really want that. That's not what I'm like, or that's not, that's not what I value. And then they don't see these other parts. They don't see the, the ethics, the, the ways of living, the more complicated questions about you know, knowledge and justice and virtue. And so I would say the real detriment to a little less, stoic, uh, a little less stoicism um, is that it kind of simplifies what is really a complex and interesting system. And it does it a disservice and it makes people not interested in learning more, I would say. What do you think? Yeah, well, the... 
English language, for whatever reason, uh, as its feature of really caricaturing a set of philosophical schools. We call people stoic when they don't express any emotions. We call them cynics when they're being overly negative or call people hedonists when they're just focused on, or Epicureans when they're just focused on pleasure to uh, the extent of other goods, when of course there are three philosophical schools that don't hold any of the, uh, really just the, when of course there are these three philosophical schools that don't hold the um, ideas they're being attributed with. You know, Stoics think it's of course okay to experience emotions. There's this whole set, a whole family of positive emotions uh, that are ideal. The cynics aren't purely you know, negative naysayers by any means, uh, though they are um, hardcore. And the Epicureans um, uh, counseled the exact opposite of what uh, people often get called Epicurean for today. So for whatever reason, I think this is just a, a hangover of how our English language has uh, evolved. Yeah, this reminds me of when you were mentioning Cynic and Epicurean, reminds me of this meme um, where it's something, it's something silly, but it's like Plato comes back from the dead and somebody mentions platonic love and he's like, what does that mean? And it means, oh, you, you don't, you know, you don't have sex. And he's like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's another way that we've done we've done Plato dirty and we misrepresent these things. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's a hangover, but I guess my argument was that it's a it's a it's a hangover that um, impedes further discussion or it stereotypes and and it prevents that kind of um, deeper view. And when you start looking out for it, you see it. I uh, um, you see it you see it pretty often. Um, and I think it's too bad because I think stoicism has, has more to offer. And I would say, yeah, I would say different from broicism in that the smallest stoic is a simplification of the system, uh, into, into one adjective or one caricature and broicism is co connecting stoicism to a specific view of masculinity or a specific kind of masculine goal. Um, Anything and so those three are, are kind of misrepresentations. I think they're all interesting. But anything else you want to see on those, Caleb? Yeah, well, I would say that occasionally people use broicism um, who are not involved in the community also as a way as dismissing stoic thought, either because they think it promotes negative masculine ideals or because it's connected with this sort of unfeeling version of uh, stoic uh, stoicism or what they perceive stoic thought to be. So of course there are people who write books like um, I think um, the classicist Donna Zuckerberg basically accuses a number of Stoics as promoting uh, a version of Roicism. And in my view, quite unfairly, really, I think even the most popular Stoics, whether it's Ryan Holiday or of course Massimo Pellucci and Donald Robertson don't, don't do this um, and don't, don't make these mistakes. Um, so that's, I think that, that's that's worth mentioning, and then the other bit on little s stoicism, I would say, is just that I'm really not a, a huge fan of that term, just because it doesn't really uh, warrant. I think the the word stoicism, it's almost more of um, uh, just a different talking about a different thing entirely, as opposed to talking about the philosophical school, which includes uh -huh. a vision of 
you know, what it is to live the good life, not merely this picture of a uh, sort of bovine, unfeeling existence. Yeah, fair. I, w- I would say that, um, yeah, I agree with that. I would be interested in those criticisms of the, of, of the community as pr- promoting that picture. I mean, one, one thing, one thing about stoicism that, that is appealing is kind of its, um, I don't know, its equality, both across kind of class and across gender. I think it's, I would be hard pressed to think that there's anything about the philosophy itself that lends itself to kind of, um, um, bro-y or exclusionary in, in that kind of sense of the term. Um, great. Yeah, I think so. so. Well, I'm going to jump to the next three, which are traditional Stoicism, modern Stoicism, and academic Stoicism. And these, I think, are not uh, not misrepresentations of Stoicism, but different ways of approaching thinking about the philosophy. And so starting with modern Stoicism, um, modern Stoicism, I'm uh, interested to get your view on this, Caleb, but the way I take modern Stoicism, this is a movement started, maybe you know, a relatively recent movement, Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Um, the Stoicism itself was always kind of the um, strange, not always, it was popular in the Renaissance, but post-Renaissance, it was always the weird stepchild to uh, Plato and Aristotle. It was never kind of the, it was never a core part of the canon. It wasn't respected as the most important or one of the most important things to come out of antiquity. Or if it was, it was certainly many levels below the thought of the contribution of Plato and uh, Aristotle. But recently, I would say even in the last, um, last 50, 60 years, there's been a real resurgence and in interest in the philosophy. And modern Stoicism in particular is part of that resurgence. Um, there's obviously the, the, there's the modern Stoicism group. Um, and, and, and how I define this group is it, it's an attempt to, a group or movement that is attempting to modernize Stoicism, um, to keep up to date with innovations in science, psychology, neuroscience, and ethics. So in other words, it is to say, look, if we take what's essential about Stoicism, maybe that is, you know, speaking for modern Stoics, maybe that's the view that virtue is the only good and that we should live in accordance with our nature. So keeping, preserving those things, what should we change now that we know what we know about science? What should we change now that we know what we know about, about ethics, about human psychology and human neuroscience and things like this? Um, so I think that's what, what connects all this. So Lawrence, Beck, Lawrence Becker has his book, A New Stoicism, which it attempts to do just this, which is to, to reconstruct the philosophy um, 
from a modern perspective while preserving what he takes to be essential to it. Um, Massimo Pigliucci talks about updating Epictetus, talks about what needs to be changed. So when I look at modern Stoicism, I look at it as kind of a, a wrestling with, with ancient Stoicism, say, look, there's a lot of value here. Let's take what we can. Let's preserve what's essential, but let's throw out what's outdated. Let's throw out what doesn't work anymore, or let's throw out what we know to be wrong, especially about things like science and physics and um, things like this. Uh, is that what you take modern Stoicism to be, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, that seems right to me. I would say that many people in the modern Stoic movement were brought to Stoicism for reasons that were connected to the Stoics' use um, as a psychological tool. Not everyone, but many. You have Albert Ellis, who invented rational um, behavioral motive therapy, who was heavily influenced by the Stoics. Um, and then Donald Robertson has done quite a lot of work on that front, uh, modernizing Stoicism and combining it with cognitive behavioral therapy. You have people like Pierre Hadot, who emphasize the spiritual exercise aspect of Stoicism. So a lot of people are very struck by the techniques of Stoicism. But what makes, I think, modern Stoic movement, especially special or unique, important, why it plays an important role for so many people today is that it also promotes a vision of the good life. So it's not just like a modern therapy in a sense of cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be understood just as a set of tools for living better or a framework for living better. Instead, it's like positively opinionated on what uh, a good life looks like and um, that vision is sort of grounded, what people take to be essential in Stoic thought. So uh, very, the you know, most common central claim, I would think, is the importance of virtue and that either virtue is the only good, or perhaps if it's not the only good, it's the good for which uh, uh, one should never make any sacrifices. It's not the sort of thing that should ever be traded off. Um, so that's that's how I would that's how I would describe modern Stoics' um, sort of emergence, if you will, as a lot of interest in the techniques of Stoicism, in addition to this view that Stoicism can play a meaningful role in a life and perhaps even fill a vacuum for many people that they've experienced uh, with a loss of religion or a general secularization of the modern world. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that view that it is, um, it's a powerful set of psychological techniques that are not that is not value agnostic, um, is something that's really important to it. And what I kind of see in, in so it's it, these aren't just tools, but it, it's it's a way of life. And what it means to be a way of life is it means it gives you an answer about this is the wrong way to live, and this is a better or this is what this is what a good life looks like, and this is what worse lo lives look like, and it's okay to stake those kinds of claims. And um, I think perhaps there's this interesting emergence too as people move away. I think the relationship between Stoicism and or religion is very interesting. But I've always kind of suspected as people have moved away from having religion serve that function, there's become more space for philosophies as ways of life or more need for um, overarching value structures 
to adopt. And um, I think maybe that that has something to something to do with modern stoicism's emergence in you know the the two thousands uh, in this in this recent time period, as I think more and more people are, if not moving away from religion, at least wrestling with their religion and um, meaningfully engaging with alternatives, especially with the emergence of the internet and the emergence of globalization and this capacity to kind of have this marketplace of ideas. You know, yeah, I'm just struck right now as a tangent that the marketplace of ideas is a metaphor for, you know, an agora, a a literal marketplace, which is what kind of Athens would have been like when people from different areas would have been walking through, talking about it, arguing with each other, debating different philosophies. And now the internet has provided capacity to do that, has provided a capacity to, you know, go to modern stoicism conventions, listen to podcasts like this, um, go on Facebook groups and kind of engage in this, in this rigorous debate about ways to live, um, which is interesting and meaningful to people. I, I, Open, I'm open if you have more to say on that. I wanted to jump into academic stoicism to kind of have it as a foil to modern stoicism, um, if that works. But did you have anything Yeah, else? let's do that. Yeah. So academic, academic stoicism, um, I'll bring this up as a contrast to modern stoicism. Um, academic stoicism, I would say, is an attempt to understand stoicism as accurately as possible but to understand Stoicism as a historical artifact, not something to be lived in accordance with. So the value of Stoicism is the same value that might come from other kind of historical pieces of knowledge. Um, it has a kind of classical knowledge. It can tell us things about the way we live today. It can, it can teach us about the history of psychology, philosophy, um, humans' ways of, of wrestling with their existence. But it, it, it is a... Um, it is a cultural artifact to be understood, not something to be practiced. And now, academic stoicism is very, very new as well, right? So you mentioned Hado. I mean, Hado was was writing in maybe the the seventies, the eighties. He's pretty recent. Um, in the English tradition, Hado mm-hmm. was French. In the English tradition, you have Anthony Long, A. Long, um, who's still living, um, but but retired. Very, very famous um, person who, who kind of pushed the emergence of Hellenistic philosophy. I would say in the early '70s. I think '74 was one when he put out one of his his best books on um, Stoic philosophy and Hellenistic philosophy. And then after that work of you know Hado and Anthony Long, you had these you had this real emergence. Um, John Cooper, Julia Annis, Martha Nussbaum. This real emergence of people that were taking Stoicism and Hellenistic philosophy seriously, because before it was just not, it was just not treated with the same respect and reverence that Aristotle and Plato had, um, who who were really considered as the the people who were making the most valuable contributions to philosophy at the time. But then again, as I say, in the seventies and then the eighties and nineties, you had lots of people starting to to uh, on the back of, I would say, Hado and Anthony Long, you have people started treating Stoicism seriously as something to be studied. But if you come to, if you engage with academic Stoicism, you know, I, I have my PhD in Stoicism, so I, I was engaged with academic Stoicism. If you engage with academic Stoicism from the perspective of a practitioner, it can often be a quite uh, 
quite, I don't know, I would say misaligned in values. I would say it's, 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 it's a wonderful resource. Um, and I'm incredibly indebted to the people that are doing this work. Um, but often, often I feel like it can tend to be inert in its value, or at least I would say not maximizing the value. But I, but, but I also look at it as kind of a, a process, right? So somebody kind of, the academic Stoics are like the archaeologists, right? They go and they dig the stuff out. It's like, you know, we don't want to, not everybody wants to learn Greek. Not everybody wants to learn Latin and um, go and, and read uh, fragments of Stoics and try to place these together with other fragments to create a coherent picture. But because somebody has done that, it's like a funnel. Because somebody has done that, then um, other people are able to read that work. And then because they're able to read that work, they're able to put it into action. So um, I would say an, an immensely valuable thing that's being done, contrast with the modern stoicism community, the modern stoicism community was saying, wow, look at this amazing resources you're pulling out, these amazing things you're studying, these papers you're publishing. Let's do something with it. Let's put it into life. Let's put it into action. Um, and that's, I would say, the, the break between the two. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. The focus of this podcast is on the theory and practice of Stoicism. So we care about both important theoretical questions and then the practical aspect of applying whatever comes out of theoretical, philosophical inquiry. You know, just focusing on theory is inert. Merely focusing on practice uh, would be with uh, practice without a direction, you know. Um, so there's always the risk that academic stoicism for someone who's interested in both the theory and practice is going to be too far on the theoretical side. And not just that, some of the theoretical questions may be less interesting to people. Uh, you know, like what are, what's, how does Stoic logic differ from Aristotelian huh. logic is not the sort of thing many modern Stoics need to think about or know about, unless, of course, they're interested in the question. Um, but I think one useful frame I have for thinking about a lot of different fields is that if you're inclined to dismiss a field because it seems too academic, I think that's a fine intuition, a fine reaction, or if you're inclined, maybe if you have the opposite tendency, you're inclined to dismiss a whole body of work because it seems like too popular or unsophisticated. One should always remember that like there's this line that 80% of everything is crap and 20% is excellent. And you should always be looking for that 20% because normally in any group of people, there's going to be some subset of people who are doing excellent work, uh, the sort of thing that would be uh, perhaps yeah, quite useful to you. For So both Michael and I have been heavily influenced by um, academics. You know, on my side, Pierre Hadot uh, really shaped my reading of the ancient Stoics, and uh, his work uh, is excellent. Um, so that's I think that's the general attitude I would counsel about uh, the academic academics, uh, as it were, is that, you know, there are some excellent works, the popular people who, uh, more popular, more practical people who 
do excellent work have been influenced by a number of them. And uh, that's uh, an important, uh, important fact to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, and I would say to add to that, because, you know, you, you rightly framed that you can go too far in either direction, right? You can have, you can raise these kind of questions of, of you know, why have you spent so much time studying, philo studying philosophy if you haven't put it into practice? You know, have you misunderstood philosophy? I always think these things about, I always think there's something peculiar about these ethics professors that get accused of like sexually assaulting their students, for example, which has happened more often than uh, I would like to admit for the profession of philosophy. You always think there's something quite peculiar going on there, right? And that's something that the Stoics hit on, something very strange when you know ethics very well in one sense, but you don't put it into practice in another. So too much theory can be kind of inert and peculiar in this sense. Too much practice is without direction, as you pointed out. And when you were talking, though, I was thinking that maybe in terms of what to do with this modern Stoicism, academic Stoicism, I would say almost this is when you want that Goldilocks solution, that not too hot, not too cold, which is that you've raised this before, Caleb, but if you're the kind of person that tends to focus on practice, complement that with some theory, enrich that with some deeper understanding. If you're kind of the person that kind of tends to focus on logic puzzles um, or likes the, the, the rigorous, um, I don't know, the, the rigorous scholarship, complement that with some practice, complement that with some training. Um, that's the kind of thing that I, I know Epictetus would counsel when he was working with students. Um, and he often criticizes his students who show off how much Chrysippus they've read or how much uh, text they've memorized. In his view, you've gotten it all wrong. Um, in, in if, if, if you end up in that position, you've gone too far in the way of theory. But as you pointed out, both of us are also heavily, heavily influenced by the people we've read. Um, but yeah, so kind of adding a bit, you know, not, not too hot, not too cold, comment the, that as necessary. The third part that I think is an interesting mix that I wanted to raise, which is something I've been encountering a lot on the internet. So we talked about modern stoicism, we talked about academic stoicism. Uh, and the third section I would say is the traditional stoicism movement. And what I define as the traditional stoicism movement um, is it's a commitment to stoicism, commitment to practicing stoicism, combined with the belief that stoicism only works if we retain, if not all of it, then almost all of its parts, including those parts which might seem peculiar, strange, or bad to a modern reader. And uh, I think the contrast is often between what I would say is the traditional Stoicism and the modern Stoicism community. And I think that these two communities often argue, I think first and foremost about the Stoic conception of God. I think that's like one of the, the clearest points here to, to flush out this, this difference. And the traditional Stoics would say something like, look, we believe in Stoicism as a way of life. We want to practice Stoicism as a way of life. But Stoicism as a way of life only works, only makes sense if you agree in the Stoic um, pantheistic conception of God as imbuing and um, manifesting in everything. And the modern Stoics would say, no, I can still practice Stoicism even without a Stoic conception of God, even if I'm atheistic, for example, even if I don't believe in God, because Stoicism is an, an ethical position about you know, the primacy of virtue and certain tools and skill sets around 
uh, emotional management, stress management, behavioral management. So I don't need stoic logic to be true. I don't need stoic physics to be true to practice stoicism. And the traditional stoics say, what you're doing doesn't even look like stoicism anymore. You're doing something else. You know, if, if this was around in ancient Greece, it would be an entirely different school of thought. Um, and I always think those arguments are really interesting. I myself wrestle with where I fall in between the two of those. Uh, but what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that a tr it's always a, a fun when your movement gets long, large enough to have different schisms. Uh, and I think this has played out in quite a number of different political and religious movements. And there's always the question when there is a schism, is it the sort of thing that is driven by something an important consideration or is that the sort of thing where it's a, you know, it's a narcissism of small differences, right? And you see both uh, in history where sometimes people, uh, you know, entire countries will split for good reasons and other times maybe, maybe not so much. So I think it'd be most useful here to jump into like, what is the actual claim that traditional Stoics might make against many modern Stoics? And what I understood you to be saying is just that there's something about, I think most nearly every modern Stoic would say virtue is primary. The next step that many traditional Stoics may claim is that you, not only is virtue primary, but you need this idea that the universe is imbued with reason or there's a much deeper logic two things, you know, logos and permeates the most fundamental level of the universe. And without that idea, that's one candidate, you cannot really be a Stoic. Um, the other candidate would be that modern Stoics haven't understood the idea of indifference, where I think probably a lot of modern Stoics just thinking something when they say virtue is the primary good they think that it's the most good as opposed to the only thing that as good which is probably it's closer to many of the ancient stoics positions the stoics themselves argued about this of course ancient stoics but the the dominant stoic position would have been that you know virtue is the only good and these indifference some of them are preferred that just means we would want them more from be given our nature uh but it doesn't mean that they are actually good so those are the two those are the two candidates that come to come to mind um, for what traditional Stoics might argue. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think that's a good list. I think the thing that I would add is Stoicism was very, Stoicism was very famous and very intentional in the interconnectedness of its philosophy. It made an argument, the ancient Stoics made an argument that look, um, you have to understand physics you have to understand logic, understood as like epistemology, ways of knowing, and you have to understand ethic. You have to just understand all three of these. You can't understand any of them in isolation. So I think another thing that traditional Stoics, another thing to add to the list is the traditional Stoics would say the modern Stoics have overemphasized ethics. In overemphasizing ethics, they've forgotten about the logic and the physics. So one, that's a mistake. That's something that they shouldn't do. And two, they're very willing to throw away certain parts of the ethics and the physics without understanding the implications those changes 
or sorry, the logic and the physics without understanding the implications those changes have on the ethics. So it's not just that you have to believe in a pantheistic God to be a Stoic. It's that if you don't believe in a pantheistic God, you can't get the argument of virtue is the only good, right? Because then you, you, you lose arguments about um, the benevolent nature of the universe, the benefits of living in accordance with its nature, um, the idea that we have a function that's grounded in um, something outside of just biological observation. We have kind of a, a teleological function grounded in um, the divine. The, I myself, I, 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 I don't think these things are necessary, I think. I, I think I, I tend towards modern Stoicism in this sense. Um, but their view would be, you know, not only do you need those things to be Stoic, but without those things, you can't even get the ethical positions you, you, you want to hold. You can't argue your way to them anymore because all of these things are interconnected. That's what I would add. Yeah, yeah. So there's the idea that you need the stoic God, as it were. There's the idea that virtue must be the only good. And then finally, this notion of interconnectedness plays an essential role in the philosophy. All of these seem like important questions to me, but they don't seem like things that would cause me to deny that someone is a, a stoic. On that, that I think at that level, they seem closer to, you know, do you need um, a stoic god to make an account of virtue? It's an interesting, important philosophical question, but it also sort of seems like the debate a Christian might have, which is like, this is the only sense of incarnation that makes sense and if you don't have some other account of you know how jesus can be incarnated in a human that your philosophy is not going to work and someone could say that truthfully and i don't think that being true would entail that someone is not a christian in any uh, important sense i mean there is a true account if you're a christian of course there is a true account of the incarnation um and probably the other ones are not going to work. They're going to have serious problems. But that doesn't mean that one needs to believe the true account in order to be a uh, practicing Christian. And I would say the same thing about the Stoics, that to me, one the views about the Stoic God or whether virtue is the only good or whether it's just the most good, um, don't seem especially central. The last one about the integration of different ideas also seems like plausibly a, a, a critique that has important practical upsides um, and that we should, we should talk about that more. But we don't, um, you know, is it a plausible critique? Maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's, if I guess so, I was taking a step back the, the traditional Stoic critique of modern Stoicism would be, this is watered down, you're not doing it right. Um, and then you could do that judgmentally and say, therefore, you're not a real Stoic, or you could do it charitably and you could say, you're not doing it right, so you're missing out on a lot of the good stuff, you're missing out on a lot of the benefits, you're missing out on a lot of the arguments that make sense and help you understand Stoicism or the coherency of the worldview. Um, 
And then the flip side, I guess, that's what the traditional Stoic would say to the modern Stoic. And then the modern Stoic to the traditional Stoic might say, well, I don't know, maybe you're being uncharitably, maybe you're being a bit pedantic. You, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're, you're creating schisms where they're not necessary. You know, we're all part of the same group. Or maybe charitably, they'd say, look, you're, you're getting lost a bit in the theory and a bit you, you, uh, away from the practice. Um, and that focus on, you know, clearly delineating where Stoicism starts and ends, clearly delineating who is and who isn't or what is and what isn't. You know, there's a lot of, um, you're, you're losing a lot of the, the value that could be in the middle ground there. That was my attempt at charitably taking interpretation from each side. Anything, anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that if you are wondering whether a question is too pedantic or too theoretical, one heuristic to apply here is that does the answer to this question, would an answer to this question change my behavior in an important way? So the answer to the question, you know, would a good person consume meat? That question, its truth value would, you know, cause you to have reasons to consume or not consume meat. That's a, a sort of simple example. The answer to the question, you know, is virtue the only good or is it just the primary good? And I think does not actually, would not change your actions. Is the person thinks virtue is the primary good, but not the only one, they're likely just going to act in the same way as the person who thinks the virtues, in fact, the only good. Um, so that strikes me as splitting hairs. And if you're, if you're on the more traditional side, that's the, that's the challenge I would, I would uh, give to you if you are thinking about some of these other questions. Yeah, because then it becomes, you can ask, you know, yeah, is this a question that's meaningful for my behavior? Or is this more about me trying to delineate definitions, trying to establish conceptual borders and um, questions? And then I think rightfully kind of interrogate why you're doing that. Sometimes it's valuable, sometimes it's not. Um, but yeah, I love that heuristic. That makes a lot of sense. I think Epictetus, it, of course, has the story. It's something to the effect of, you know, I can recite Chrysippus for you and I can compare his views with the views of Antipater. But is that the reason that young men come from their homes to <laughs> visit my school for these trifling words? One, one feature that makes words trifling or not is whether, whether they change your behavior. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, like in all things, whenever I'm confused, I just go back to Epictetus. I'll just, <laughs> he'll, he'll shout me into shape. Um, but yeah, that, that, exactly. that's it. That's my, that's my, that's my six. I think that was a, um, a youthful, uh, useful discussion. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, Kale. A lot of fun. Yep. Thanks again. That's, uh, that's another conversation. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. 
And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com. And please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.